Our Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Once again, we welcome you to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We are joined by Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, great to catch up again. Hope you had a great Independence Day. We certainly did. We went to a gospel sing out in the country in an old area that had been used for campground revival meetings since the 1850s. And they had an utterly magnificent fireworks display, the kind of thing you'd expect to find in a big city. But this was really beautiful. And there was a man living out there in the area who did pretty well financially throughout his life. And he decided this is one way he could give back to the community. So He's been doing this each year. And, oh, then we have Patriot services in our churches. And I pastor two churches, and we had Patriot services in both. One of the things that I addressed in my messages in both of the churches was whether it's appropriate to have the American flag in a Christian church. And there are an increasing number of churches, even conservative evangelical churches that are taking the position that no, the American flag does not belong in the church. And these people, some of them at least, are not unpatriotic people. They simply think that that is commingling America with Christianity and America with God. Well, here's the question that I pose to my congregation on that. And I ask the question, what does the Christian flag stand for? Most of these churches would also have the Christian flag, you know, with the cross in the upper left-hand corner. And what does the Christian stand or flag stand for? Does it stand for God? Or does it stand for the church? And historically, I think the answer to that is it stands for the church. And if it stands for the church, then I think it does have a place along with both flags, the American flag and the Christian flag in the church. Because God has established these two kingdoms, church and state. And he has given certain authority to each. And as Luther said, that these two kingdoms must be sharply distinguished and both permitted to remain, the one to prevent evil deeds and the other to promote piety. In other words, church and state each has its role. The role of the state is to keep the redcoats or the reds or whoever it is off our shores and to keep the criminals off the streets and to make sure our rights are protected. The role of the church is to preach the word of God. These don't conflict. Now, if the church is doing its job properly of preaching the word, it will produce good citizens and That will make it easier for the state to do its job properly in preserving law and order. If the state is doing its job properly, keeping criminals off the streets and keeping us safe and protecting our rights, that makes it easier for the church to do its job of preaching the word. So they go together. And the point of the matter is, you're not putting one above the other. By having both flags, you are recognizing the importance of each. Now, there are some who would say that any gathering where there is more than one flag, the U.S. flag is to be above all of the others. And there I would have to disagree. 
I would say that the Christian flag deserves a place of equal prominence with the American flag. And then we have the question in a church or other auditorium, which side does the Christian flag or the American flag go on? And frankly, the manuals that are put out of this are in disagreement. Some just say that the American flag is always on the audience's right, and any other flag is on the left. But others will say that if the flags are on the same level as the audience, that's the way it should be. But if they are on a raised podium, then the American flag is on the speaker's right. And I'm not going to get into that issue either way. So long as they're given equal treatment, which one is on which side, that's not an issue I'm going to get involved in. But the point is, on Independence Day, it's appropriate to recognize America and to recognize America within the church. As I say, God has established these two kingdoms, and he has given purposes to each, and God's word speaks about civil government. Now, if we're not going to talk about the biblical role of civil government in the church, where are they going to talk about it? I maintain it is the duty of the church to talk about the role of civil government, both what its role is and what its role is not. And if the church is not doing that, then the church is not preaching the whole counsel of God and not fulfilling its full responsibility. Well, in my messages to the two congregations on Sunday morning, I went on to address another question, and that is American exceptionalism. And that's a term that is being used as a negative today. But I would argue that God has a plan for America, just as God has had a plan for every nation in history. Every nation is established by God, and God has a purpose for that nation, a purpose that is somewhat distinct from the purposes of every other nation on earth, both now and in history. God has used each nation for a special purpose. God has given a special culture to each nation that is a little distinct from every other. And we see the way God has used nations in the past, how we use the kingdoms of North Africa and the first centuries of Christianity to proclaim the word of God and be the center for Christian scholarship. In fact, a lot of people don't realize that some of the great church fathers like Augustine and Tertullian and Clement of Alexandria and Origen and many others were from North Africa. And then the center of Christianity shifted to Southern Europe and remained there throughout most of the medieval period. And then during the Reformation, it shifted to Northern Europe and in the 17 and 1800s to Western Europe, the British Isles in particular. And then in the 1800s, it seemed like the center of Christian activity, Christian evangelism, shifted to North America. But there is no guarantee that it's going to always remain there. But the point is, every nation is exceptional. But if we're going to say every nation is exceptional, then that really means no nation is really exceptional. And so the question we need to ask them is, is America exceptionally 
exceptional. And my argument is, yes, it is. Yes, America is exceptionally exceptional. The Christian writer in England, G.K. Chesterton, said that most nations are founded on a race or on a geographical area or a culture or a language or some other unifying factor. But America is unique in that it was founded upon a creed. But what is the creed of America? Well, I like the way Alexei de Tocqueville put it. When in Democracy in America, he said that the thing that makes the American creed unique from others is that it places Christianity and liberty as one and the same together. Not that they're identical, but that they go together. He said back in France, he had always seen Christianity or the church and liberty at odds with each other, marching in opposite directions. That the revolutionaries were the atheists, the socialists, the deists and the like, and those supporting the church were the authoritarians in government. And anyway, so in America, though, he said, liberty and Christianity have always been marching hand in hand together, and the average American cannot conceive of one without the other. That is a distinctive of America, and that's one thing that makes America truly exceptional. The American Declaration of Independence is also an exceptional document, recognizing that our independence is due to the laws of nature and of nature's God, and that we have a special status because we were given that status by God, created by God in the status of equality, and granted unalienable rights by our Creator. And our Declaration of Independence looks to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions and places a firm reliance on divine providence. Liberals don't like to cite the Declaration of Independence today because the way they interpret the Constitution the Declaration of Independence would be unconstitutional. But there's another thing that makes America exceptional, and that is the United States Constitution, a document that enables us to achieve these ideals of liberty and stability in a society of imperfect people like you and me. More later. This is Constitution Classroom on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We are with Colonel John Eitzmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, you are laying out a few of the things people ought to know about uh, not just the Declaration, but also our Constitution. Let's pick up where we left off. Certainly, the United States Constitution is an exceptional document because it provides a practical means by which these ideals of liberty and equality, coupled with stability in government can be achieved in a society of imperfect people like you and me. I always loved the way James Madison put it in Federalist number 50, 51 or 53. I'm having a memory lapse at the moment here. But where, and remember, he had studied theology at Princeton, but he said that if men were angels, no government would be necessary. But he's saying, we're not angels, so we need government. 
And he says, if angels were to govern him, no control on government would be necessary. We could just give government absolute power. But he's saying, our rulers aren't angels either. And so he says, in framing a government which is to be administered by men over men, the great difficulty lies in this. You must first enable the government to control the governed, and in the next place, oblige it to control itself. And that's what the Constitution is really all about, giving a government enough power to govern effectively, recognizing that we didn't have enough power under the Articles of Confederation, but also making sure that government doesn't become tyrannical and oppressive, as did the government of England. That's what the Constitution is all about. And I love those words of Ronald Reagan as we begin our program. But one of the unique things about America is that we, the people, tell the government what it can do, rather than the government telling us what we can do. It's been put before that in a free country, the people shouldn't fear their government. The government should fear the people. And I'm afraid that government, it's losing its fear of the people, or maybe it still has that fear, but in fact, anymore, it seems like government has a great distrust of the people and wants to take power away from them, and hopefully we will not let them do that. That's part of what the Supreme Court is all about. The role of the Supreme Court is supposed to be to decide questions under law and under the Constitution not just to occasionally come down with academic pronouncements about what the Constitution should or should not say, but to take actual flesh and blood cases, and in those cases, render decisions about what the Constitution means and what the statutes mean. One of the things that I found really irritating, but let me add one thing before I get into that, I don't want to forget this, I did see one item of good news in the last day or so here, and that is this left-wing filmmaker, Michael Moore. Have you heard about him? He looks weird, but his films and public pronouncements are even more weird. But he has made a statement that he is so disgusted with the United States because of what he perceives as racism and Supreme Court decisions that go against what he wants and things like that that effective July, he is going to give up many of his rights of citizenship. Well, I find that a good thing. Maybe one of the things he'll give up is his right to vote. I hope so. Maybe another thing he'll give up is his right to speak, make goofy statements like that, and his right to make goofy films. However, I think he'll find that those rights are said to be unalienable, meaning that not only government can't take them away, but we can't even give them up ourselves. And I'm afraid we're stuck with Michael Moore having freedom of speech, even if he doesn't want it. However, a lot of people don't really understand what the role of the court is. We had a decision that the Supreme Court announced on June 30th. It was a 6-3 decision pitting the six conservatives, including the moderate conservatives, against the three liberals, striking down a ruling, a set of regulations by the Environmental Protection Commission, the EPC, 
that over a period of time would have the effect of shifting America its regulation of power plants and the like, shifting America over to more solar power, more wind power and the like, and stop our dependency on gas, coal, and oil. Well, West Virginia is a major coal-producing state, and so West Virginia didn't like this. They filed a lawsuit against the EPC, and the Supreme Court, six to three, struck those regulations called the Clean Power Plan struck them down as being illegal. Well, last, it was last Sunday, the New York Times had an article in which the New York Times said, clearly, the Supreme Court doesn't care much about clean energy. Well, Brian, I think you've known over the years that I try to be rather dispassionate. I try not to engage in wild, loud rhetoric or name-calling, but frankly, whoever wrote that editorial for the New York Times is a constitutional idiot. Because what the Supreme Court thinks about clean energy, what they think about solar power or wind power as against other forms of power is, or at least should be, utterly irrelevant to this case. The Supreme Court's role is not to decide policy questions like that. That's the role of Congress. The Supreme Court's role is simply to decide whether a certain action by government is within the powers granted to it by the Constitution or delegated to it by the Congress. All the Supreme Court said in this case was that Congress has never delegated to the Environmental Protection Commission any authority to engage in what it called major questions of shifting power nationwide to solar power and wind power. They didn't even decide whether Congress could delegate that power. That'll be for another case. All they decided was the Congress has not delegated that power to the EPC, and therefore the EPC cannot simply promulgate those kinds of regulations by themselves. That's all. And this constitutional idiot from the New York Times says, this means the Supreme Court doesn't care about clean energy. No, what it means is the Supreme Court does care about the rule of law. They do care about what the Constitution says and doesn't say, and about what Congress has and hasn't said. Now, if the New York Times thinks regulations like this are a good thing, they need to get to work lobbying Congress to pass regulations of that nature. I'm not even going to get into the issue of whether that would be a good idea or a bad idea. But we need to understand, as the New York Times obviously doesn't, that the Supreme Court's role is not to decide major policy questions. The Supreme Court's role is to interpret the law and to interpret the Constitution. Now, we have another interesting case that the Supreme Court has 
decided this again is on a 6-3 margin. And this is case titled New York Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. Bruin being a New York official dealing with the Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms and maybe rather surprisingly dealing with the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause as well. Let's look at that in a moment. to Constitution Classroom. We are with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, as we went to break in the last segment, you were about to tell us about a recent Supreme Court case on the Second Amendment. Yes, indeed. This is the case of New York Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. And Bruin is an official in the state of New York. New York passed a firearms law And I guess we need a little background here. The Second Amendment simply says that the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. There had been a question for some years, not a question in the minds of people who really understand the Constitution and those who wrote it, but the question raised by a number of legal scholars, does the Second Amendment guarantee the right of individuals to keep and bear arms, or simply the right of the state to have a state police force or a state militia. I had argued all along that it meant an individual right to keep and bear arms. First of all, numerous statements by the founding fathers clearly indicated that. Their practice at the time clearly indicated that. But placing that particular amendment in the Bill of Rights certainly sealed that. We see that other rights in the Bill of Rights are individual rights. Why would the Second Amendment be an exception? If I were to make an argument at a constitutional law Congress or a constitutional conference, let's say I presented a paper in which I argued that the freedom of the press guaranteed in the First Amendment is simply the right of the state to have a state newspaper, that would be laughed out of there as it should be. Why give the same interpretation to the Second Amendment? Anyway, back in the Heller case, District of Columbia versus Heller, the Supreme Court, by a 5-4 decision, said the right to keep and bear arms is an individual right. And that has settled the issue, at least for the time being. And then in the McDonald case out of Illinois, several years later, the Supreme Court, again in a 5-4 ruling, said that the Second Amendment is incorporated and applied to the states, And therefore, not only the federal government, but also state and local governments are forbidden from interfering or infringing upon the right to keep and bear arms. However, New York had passed a law, and their law said that you have the right to keep arms in your home. Rather grudgingly, they conceded that right only because the Second Amendment clearly says so and because the Supreme Court had interpreted the Second Amendment for what it really says. However, New York said, 
if you want to carry your gun outside the home, you have to get a permit from a government official. And that government official will issue you a permit only if you can show good cause. And did not further define what good cause meant. In other words, basically, the law left it really within the whim of an individual law enforcement officer in various communities in New York to decide what constitutes good cause for carrying a firearm. Well, the New York Rifle and Pistol Association filed suit. The Supreme Court, by a 6-3 margin, struck New York's law down as unconstitutional. I would certainly argue that all they needed to do in this case was look to the plain wording of the Second Amendment itself. Keep and bear arms. Keep means own them, keep them in your home not just have them issued when you report for guard duty at the armory and then stack them at the armory when you leave, but the right to keep arms. But keep and bear arms. Bear arms means the right to carry those firearms publicly as well. And so this clearly is a Second Amendment right. But as far as the restriction here on carrying them, well, the Supreme Court, Justice Thomas, writing the majority opinion in this case, says that the right to carry means that you have the right to carry it publicly, but it also means that it can't be arbitrarily restricted in this way. And he went on to go to what some might think would be an unlikely source of protection for the right to keep and bear arms, that being the 14th Amendment, which guarantees equal protection of the law. No state may deny to any citizen the equal protection of the law. And he said, based on the way this law is worded, it would allow law enforcement officials to arbitrarily and capriciously grant permits to some people and deny permits to others. That's a violation of equal protection, he said. Not only might a sheriff in New York City be arbitrary about this, but the way a sheriff in New York City applies this might be very different from the way a sheriff, let's say, somewhere in upstate New York that tends to be more conservative and Republican, the way he might apply it. And so he said... This violates the 14th Amendment as well. And so putting these two rights together, he is saying, and the Supreme Court has said 6-3, a restriction like this on the requirement that you get a license to carry a firearm publicly and giving local officials pretty much arbitrary authority to decide who gets that permit and who doesn't violates the second and the 14th Amendments. Now, there is a great deal of outcry about this right now, particularly in light of several of the shootings that have taken place recently. It is interesting to note that in Highland Park, where this most recent 4th of July shooting took place, Highland Park, Illinois, 
has one of the most restrictive gun laws in the nation. And yet that didn't prevent the shooter from getting firearms. In fact, somehow leading up to July 4th, he was able to purchase five firearms, despite many things in his background that would indicate that he would be a red flag case. Red flag matters, that is, looking to people that show signs of maybe being dangerous and showing signs that maybe they would use firearms illegally and violently, that we would take away firearms from these people. Well, I can see reasons for this, but I can also see problems with it. For one thing, here in America, we don't punish people for things that they are likely to do in the future. We punish people only for things that they have done. And we don't take away somebody's right to free speech because the person might deliver an inflammatory speech in the future or an obscene speech in the future. Rather, we can restrict that right only when a person has already committed a violation. It would seem that something similar ought to apply to this most basic right of self-defense, the right to keep and bear arms. However, New York is not dismayed by this Supreme Court decision cutting down their firearm law. What New York has already done now is they have already proposed a, another strict firearms law. The new law that New York has proposed here, first of all, it would restrict people from wearing body armor, at least certain types of body armor. The idea is that people who go into shooting situations like this sometimes wear body armor to protect themselves from the police, and this would restrict them from doing so. But bear in mind, you're not going to kill anybody with body armor. Body armor is just going to enable you to not get shot yourself. This is essentially defensive and That would seem to be outside the authority of government to issue. Secondly, it would require that before anyone can be issued a firearms permit, the person has to go through extensive firearms training. And I am in favor of firearms training, just as I am in favor of getting good training on how to deliver a public speech. But I don't think that people ought to go through a course in speech or elocution or rhetoric before they're allowed to exercise their First Amendment right of free speech. I don't think people should be required to go through a course in journalism before they're allowed to write or publish. And I don't think they should be required to go through a course in firearms before they're allowed their constitutional right to keep and bear arms. More after the break. Welcome 
Welcome back. This is our final segment of Constitution Classroom today on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We're with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, as you've been going over these uh, recent Supreme Court decisions, it really has struck me that uh, the, a level of anger that I am seeing from many on the political left seems to be uh, in direct proportion to the amount that government is being limited and personal freedom is is being um, validated. Isn't that a curious thing, that uh, that freedom and, and limited government uh, sets them off in such a way? It certainly is a curious thing, and it's a good observation. And, you know, for decades, especially in the 1950s and 60s, conservatives saw the Supreme Court making liberal decisions on rights of criminal defendants, on government power, on free speech, restrictions particularly on religion and the public realm. And we didn't like these decisions and we criticized them. But I don't believe I ever saw the degree of anger on the right that I'm seeing today on the left. The left has been so used to having the Supreme Court as their ally that it infuriates them when they do not. And all the Supreme Court has been doing in these decisions, as I see it, is getting back to the law and getting back to the Constitution, back to the Dobbs versus Jackson Supreme Court decision. The Supreme Court did not say in that decision that abortion is illegal everywhere. They could have, in fact, this is a point I think I've made before on this program, but I'll make it again. What the Supreme Court said in Dobbs versus Jackson is really a very moderate decision. They could have said, based on the 14th Amendment guarantee of life, that all babies have the right to life from conception, and therefore abortion must be prohibited under all circumstances everywhere. But they didn't. Or they could have gone the other extreme, which they did in 1973, Roe versus Wade. They could have upheld Roe versus Wade, saying there is a constitutional right to abortion, even though we can't find it in the Constitution, and therefore abortion on demand must be allowed everywhere. Instead, they took a middle ground position in which they simply said that the Constitution is silent about abortion. The Constitution does not guarantee a right to abortion. And therefore, the question as to whether abortion should be totally legal, totally illegal, or legal in some circumstances and illegal in other circumstances, is a decision to be made by each individual state. That's the way it should be. That's the middle ground position. But the left is enraged about this, enraged to the point that either they lie about the decision or they're utterly ignorant about what it says. And we are hearing it said all over the place, the Supreme Court has made abortion illegal. Again, for the thousandth time, no, they haven't. They have left that matter to the states. Anyway, you're correct. The Supreme Court has simply gone back to what they should have been doing from the beginning, interpreting the Constitution for what it says, and not reading into it government powers that aren't there, not reading into it individual rights that aren't there, 
rather reading the Constitution for what it says, as we call it, originalist jurisprudence, meaning going back to the original intent of the framers. Now, we're seeing that particularly in this last term of the Supreme Court in regard to these decisions concerning religion. And I've talked about some of these decisions. The shortlift decision involving the city of Boston and Boston's policy of, in their city park, allowing organizations that were using the park to fly the flag of that organization while they were using the park. And they had allowed over 300 organizations to fly their flags at various times over the last several years, including gay rights organizations and others like this. But when Shirtliff and his church wanted to hold an event in the park and wanted to put up the Christian flag representing their church, they were refused. First time in all history that the city of Boston had refused any organization the right to fly a flag in their city park. And the Supreme Court, by a vote of nine to zero, even the liberal joining in this decision, said that is a free speech violation. And if you're going to allow other organizations to use the park with their flag, you cannot discriminate against churches. Then we have the Carson versus Macon decision. This was the decision involving Christian schools and Christian parents in the state of Maine. In this case, the state of Maine had a policy that they would subsidize parents who were sending their children to private schools because in much of northern Maine, you have wilderness where it just wasn't feasible to build public schools. However, it had to be secular private schools. If you wanted to send your child to a secular private school, the state would foot the bill. If you wanted to send your child to a religious private school, they refused. You were on your own. And several Christian parents filed a lawsuit saying, you are discriminating against us. And this time, by a 6-3 to three vote, the Supreme Court agreed with the parents and with the Christian schools and said, now, you don't have to finance anybody. You don't have to finance any private schools. But if you are going to finance private schools, you cannot discriminate against religious private schools. But I don't believe we've yet talked about the case of Coach Kennedy. Coach Kennedy, out in Bremerton, Washington, he'd been a coach there for a number of years, and he'd had a practice that at the close of every football game, he would go out on the 50-yard line of the field, and he would kneel in prayer. Now, at first, he would do this by himself. And then, as time went on, some of his teammates asked if they could join him, and he would say, it's a free country, you can do what you want. And then other people in the audience started joining, and people on the opposing team would come over and join. And nobody complained about it, but school officials decided that this was a violation of the Establishment Clause, that it was a union of church and state, and therefore they ordered him to stop. He refused to stop, and for this reason he was fired. The cases really bounced back and forth through the courts for quite a few years, but finally this year 
It came to the U.S. Supreme Court. I should add that we at the Foundation for Moral Law filed an amicus brief in support of Coach Kennedy, just as we filed an amicus brief in support of the Christian parents in Maine and Pastor Shirtliff, and in support of Mississippi and Dobbs versus Jackson. And anyway, so the Supreme Court simply said that he has a First Amendment right to free exercise of religion, as well as a First Amendment right of free speech. And this isn't government speech, it is individual speech. If we were to say, the court said this is government speech, then we'd have to say that everything a teacher says in the classroom from the beginning to the end of the day is government speech. And we've clearly said otherwise in Tinker versus Des Moines, where the court said neither students nor teachers shed their constitutional rights at the schoolhouse gate. Well, so if he has a right to free speech, you can't discriminate against him just because the speech he wants to engage in is religious. If he had gone out there on the 50-yard line to give a pep talk or to just call for both sides to be unified and not have any bad feelings about how the game went or to ask everybody to drive safely on their way home, or give some words of wisdom from Shakespeare, although that might be difficult because Shakespeare often quotes the Bible, <laughs> but he would have no problem. But because he wanted to pray or say something religious, the school board said, nope, you can't do that. You've got to stop. And so they discriminated against him because of the religious nature of his speech. And the Supreme Court, again, by a six three margin, held for Coach Kennedy, and said he is entitled to do this. The nature of religious expression in the public schools is going to be different in the coming year. I just ask you to bear in mind, our founding fathers did not come over here to get away from prayer at football games. More next week.